one of the things that I'm actually trying to do now is get in front of, you know, as many Rotan clubs and Rotary clubs as I can. And just organizations like that, tell them your story, tell them what it is that you're trying to do in the community for the community. And without even asking, I bet somebody will stand up at the end and say, hey, tell me more about what you're doing. You know, I'd, I'd like to, that sounds like something that I would like to do. There are more revenue options than ever available to local independent publishers today. You can sell ads, launch subscription or membership programs, ask for donations, hold events, create sponsored content, and more. Of course, more options also means more decisions to make and more opportunities for a revenue stream to fail. In this episode, I'll be talking with Tom Lapis and Simon Owens about how publishers can determine which revenue sources are right for their news business and how to avoid learning the hard way that a monetization strategy was not a good fit. Tom is the founder and publisher of the Henrico Citizen, a Lion member in Central Virginia. Simon is a longtime journalist, marketer, and PR professional who hosts the Business of Content podcast and publishes Simon Owens' tech and media newsletter on Substack. Tom and Simon, welcome to Newsguests. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thank you. So, Tom, you started the Henrico Citizen 20 years ago, and I want the listeners to understand what was happening 20 years ago. There was no Facebook 20 years ago. Facebook was launched in 2004. So this is a pre-social media era. This is, you know, a whole nother world. And I'm saying that because some of us are old enough that we might have forgotten. And some folks are young enough that they might not know at all that there was a pre-social media world. So tell me about how you were thinking about revenue during that time. Well, yeah, it was a long time ago. And to be honest with you, I wasn't thinking about revenue really in the way that I should have been. I was 24. I knew how to be a journalist. I knew how to put out a, a good product. And I was naive and thought, hey, if we do a good job with this product, you know, people will gravitate toward it. We'll, we will just get advertisers coming our way. You know, a year or so later, I realized that wasn't exactly how things worked. And, uh, and then I started thinking more about, you know, how are we going to generate the, the money that we need to, to keep doing this? But it took me probably two, two and a half years, as I recall, to, to even hire anybody on the revenue side. So just crazy. You know, I think back at, at that now and think, how, you know, how stupid could I have been? But, you know, I, so I've learned a lot through this, you know, two decades and, and then some. But yet early on, it was really I was focused on doing the work and, and hoping that that would somehow pay our bills. Right, exactly. So let's talk about the difference between those first days of revenue and sort of what was driving your revenue at that time versus what's really driving your revenue today. And is there a difference in those two things? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, we, we did have some, some advertising obviously back then and, and really for the, you know, the 18 and a half years that we were in print advertising was almost all of our revenue and, and never were we, you know, swimming in advertising dollars, but, you know, typically it was enough to pay most of our bills on time and, and make a go of it and, and try to do good work for our community. It really wasn't until COVID that we started looking for other forms of revenue. Like a lot of publications, you know, we kind of had to. We, we lost almost probably 85, 90% of our anticipated revenue, had to end our print edition. Most of our advertisers were with us because of the print edition, so they didn't come and so in a lot of ways, it was like starting over from, from scratch at that point. We had our name, we had our reputation, 
but moving, we moved to a five day a week, fully digital, you know, within about two weeks of COVID starting. And so doing that with really no revenue to speak of and trying to figure out how to, you know, on the fly, make things work, very stressful, very challenging. And, and to be honest, I leaned on Lion. I joined Lion shortly thereafter and, and learned a ton quickly from other members and, and from Lion itself. And, you know, and then we started asking for donations. And, and from there, we've, you know, we've gotten some grant money. We've gotten some funding from, you know, from Facebook and from Google and, and just try to piecemeal things together, really. And now we're just kind of in the last six months, seven or eight months, maybe, um, feeling like we have this multifaceted approach that, that I think is taking shape. Simon, I'm going to move over to you. So you have been working in the industry for quite a while. I want to know about some of those key things that you have been learning about revenue in the time that you have been working in journalism. And if you can tell me the thing that you think is most valuable for newsrooms to learn and to really hone in on, on the revenue side. You know, I think now, you know, as we had, you know, we're halfway through 2022. The focus needs to be on owning your audience. You, you look at like conversion rates for both advertising and 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 also paid subscriptions, membership stuff like that. It's it's about how much of a relationship, a direct relationship, do you have with your audience, and that drives up ROI in terms of converting your readers into paying subscribers, paying members. It's an intimacy that advertisers like to really pay for. So there's a, that's why you're seeing a lot of emphasis for things like newsletters where you have a direct connection. There's no algorithm, you know, Facebook-like algorithm that's separating you from your readers. So I think that's probably the biggest, even though it's not, you know, a direct revenue driver, it's the biggest component in any kind of revenue strategy right now. So let's talk about owning your audience, Simon. What does it mean for a newsroom or a newsletter writer to own their audience? And how do you really claim that relationship and, and really have that, that feedback loop between your audience and yourself, particularly when it comes to driving revenue? Well, a big part of it is having them opt in to a newsletter and having their email address. You know, for the most part, uh, having someone's email address, you there. I mean, you can be blocked from accessing them. Obviously, Gmail and other major platforms have spam filters or promotion folders and stuff like that. But the email address is a major component of that, and the and the importance is like very them voluntarily giving it to you, and that's incredibly important that you don't just spam people, that you don't add people without their permission. So that's a huge part of it. Another part is, you know, if, if you're, you know, them actually knowing who you are, not just you're not just like a headline that's that's popping up on their Facebook feed, but they know your name or the name of your publication. So that there's some actual brand affinity there. And that's going to be important w later once you introduce a membership or subscription strategy is like they need that brand affinity. They need to feel that connection to you. That's exactly. That's exactly right, right? Having that audience understand what you, who you are, who are the people behind the words that they're seeing is so valuable when you're trying to particularly drive that subscription rate and those membership dollars. So let's talk about those first hires we make on the revenue side. As someone who made their first hire on the revenue side just last year after Outlier had been in business for over five years, I can't tell you how much better I sleep at night now knowing that there are other folks thinking about revenue other than myself. So 
you know, in the beginning of our conversation time, you talked about how for those first two years, you all didn't have anyone on the revenue side. When should a news organization make a revenue hire? And I know that's a a big question because it's going to be different for every organization, but we spent a lot of time on the editorial side. When should those revenue hires start to come in? And that's the question I'm posing to both of you. Let's start with Tom. Well, I think you have to decide first. You know, there, there are some publishers who, who probably are better in the revenue generation end of things on their own. So in that case, maybe they're going to be hiring uh, a journalist and they're going to take over the revenue part. But for folks like me, I mean, I'm a journalist. I had no training at all in revenue generation. It was not at all anything that I wanted to do. And I've just kind of done it out of necessity over the years. But I think you have to be in a place where you really have done your homework, have done your background work. You know, you need to know who your audience is, who you're reaching. If you haven't done a survey of your readers, you need to do that. Because ultimately, you need to put together a whole plan for whoever that person is going to be so that you know, you know, what are they going to be doing? Who are they going to be targeting? And the other thing that I would say is, you know, you have to be, you have to understand what that pay structure is going to look like. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to hire folks, and I've probably tried all of them at one point or another, you know, talking about a high commission and a low base or strictly commission or a higher base and a lower commission or sort of a a split or, you know, the one that we haven't done, but that a lot of folks do is sort of a draw basis where you're, you know, you're kind of guaranteeing a certain amount for a period of time. If you're paying them any type of base salary, for some period of time, how long can you keep that paying that person if they don't sell anything? How much are you willing to lose? I've, and this is a situation that has unfortunately happened to me too a couple of times. I, I've hired people, paid them a base salary for uh, you know three, four, five months, and they have either left suddenly or I had to get rid of them because they didn't sell anything. And it can really set you back, especially the folks you know who are at our level, which is a lot of Lion members. You know, you can't afford to be wrong. You can't afford to be wrong, as I'm sure is something that sits in many a Lion member's stomach every day, right, as you're making those decisions, particularly on the revenue side. Let's talk for just a second about hiring salespeople and finding them in the community. What are some tips that you can give to folks about how to find salespeople? We talked about the difficulty of that, that role in filling it. I think what I've learned is that the people who treat it just like a job are probably, in most cases, not the people that are going to be right for you. The people who have really thrived in this role for me were people who already were invested in the community in some way. You know, they were volunteers in community organizations or they were really gung-ho about, you know, being part of Henrico County. They, they were, you know, one of them was the Henrico Christmas Mother, which is kind of like the, the leader of this program that raises money, you know, for, for children in need every year. And so things like that, where, you know, there are a ton of organizations in any community that are already doing work for the community. And so go talk to those groups. You know, one of the things that I'm actually trying to do now is get in front of, you know, as many Ruritan clubs and Rotary clubs as I can. And just organizations like that, tell them your story, tell them what it is that you're trying to do in the community for the community. And without even asking, I bet somebody will stand up at the end and say, hey, tell me more about what you're doing. You know, I'd, I'd like to, that sounds like something that I would like to do. And both of the, the two best salespeople that I had pretty much fit that. They came to me and said, hey, we really believe in what you're doing. Do you have any jobs? <laughs> you know, are you, are you looking to hire somebody? And they'll hear you. That's right. Simon, today I was sitting on a call with our accountant. And when we got off the call, 
my editor-in-chief and also founder said, I am so glad that you are the person who has to have that conversation. You know, she's founded Outlier as a journalist and not as a, a business person and brought me on to think about the business. End. And I know that that's something that you have thought a lot about and encouraged, particularly journal- journalists who are starting organizations to really think about who you're going to bring in as a partner on the business. And so let's talk about selecting a business partner. Um, how does someone go about finding that person? And what are the traits that you should be looking at when trying to find a business partner to help run your organization? Yeah. So, you know, Tom was talking about, you know, bringing someone much later into the process when he can he can afford to hire them. You know, if I were launching a local news outlet today from completely from scratch, you know, I have this background in journalism, maybe working for mainstream, whatever the local Gannett paper or whatever. I want to go off on my own. I think I would do exactly that is I would try to go to someone within the community who has the flexibility and the business background who might have a background in sales or something like that and be like, hey, here's my idea. I have like a strong editorial background. I do have some business sense, but I need someone who can think about that all the time, who can take those phone calls who can meet with local business owners who can think around a subscription strategy while I'm like, while I'm spending most of my time just thinking about how to create the the best content and the best journalism. So let's talk about once you have that business partner in place and you're ready to start publishing, really thinking about how you can find the right advertising partners and the right, perhaps sponsored content partners. How do you think through that strategy? And what is advice that you might give to folks as they start to think through how to work out those models? You know, I've interviewed Scott Broadbeck, who runs Arl Now. And the thing that he talked about is that his sponsored content, it's just as valuable as any of the editorial content because it's about local advertisers and it's about issues like his readers. They don't just they don't they don't really differentiate between, oh, this is an ad and this is an editorial content because they get value from both because, you know, a good local advertiser is something that people actually, you know, care about. So framing that, you, you know, creating that framing that you're basically giving them their own blog on your news site or, or whatever. And obviously it's going to be disclosed, but like that they actually are going to have an audience and, and almost feed into their egos a little bit about storytelling and, and giving them that flexibility. It's almost like that, you know, pitching them almost as a guest writer. And so I think that's like a good way to, because I think like native advertising you know, when you see it on like a national news site, you're probably less likely to click on it because it's just not going to be as good as the editorial content. But I think like where native advertising can really shine is at the local level. So pitching that idea of storytelling and giving them an audience and allowing them to basically kind of, some of these really successful local news outlets, just kind of let their advertisers do whatever they want. Obviously it's all disclosed. So, you know, it's an ad, but like they give them a blog or a column or something like that. And I think that has like really real appeal to like local businesses and leaders and stuff like that. That's great. Tom, we're going to move past advertising a bit and we're going to talk about the citizen collective which is something you launched after COVID, correct? Am I right about that? Yeah, it's our it's our new membership program, something that we were working on for a few months. And, and honestly, you know, I had gotten, I, I've been back and forth for probably a year or more about do we, you know, do we try a paywall or do we not? Part of me thinks, you know, we should be like any other industry. We, you know, you do a job, you do a, you provide a product or a service and people pay for it directly. A big part of me thinks that that's the way to go. But then I was actually having a conversation with 
with my business development manager. She said, well, you know, I don't know if that, that, that I like that because I think that having access to local news should be a, considered a, a fundamental human right. And I kind of thought about that and it really sat with me in a, in a positive way. And I thought, you know what, you're right. I agree. And so let's do everything we can do to keep our coverage free for everyone as long as we can. And maybe the way to do that is to, you know, start this membership program. And instead of charging, you know, folks two bucks or five bucks or seven bucks a month, find the people who can give 75 bucks, 150 bucks a year. And you need a lot fewer of them to basically achieve the same goal. And, you know, we've been around long enough that I felt like, hey, we probably have that many people. And maybe we end up with 500 people who are members of our you know, membership program. And if we get 500 members, probably averaging, you know, 100 bucks, 125 bucks a piece. Now that puts us into a different stratosphere. There's more of this episode coming up. But first, a quick word about the Lion GNI Sustainability Audits and Funding Program, which is a very long name for a very cool new opportunity that gives independent news publishers a personalized roadmap and up to $6,000 of funding to help them build a stronger, more sustainable business. Nearly 50 publishers have already been accepted into this program, and there's still time to apply for the next cohort. To learn more, check out the link in this episode description or email your question to hello at lionpublishers.com. And now, let's get back to the conversation with Simon and Tom. As someone who, who has a newsroom that takes donations, donation money is really is a comfort because it sits right at the base of your yearly budget, right? And particularly when you can bring in those folks that are giving monthly, right? So, you know, $10 a month is going to come in every month. That's a really good place. And typically when people hit that $10 a month, they sort of set it and forget it and they have moved on with their lives and, you know, they might've forgot they're even giving it to you. So it's a, it's a nice way to be able to pad your budget every year for sure. We tried to add, you know, a bunch of benefits. And one of the things that we've, that we added at the top level is you get to, to designate a nonprofit that will get 15 days of free advertising if you join at that top level. So our thought is, you know, maybe there will be folks who are all from one nonprofit community, 10 of them join. Now that nonprofit's got five free months of advertising with us. So it's kind of like you help us, we help you kind of thing. If you all don't steal that idea from time, don't worry, I will be taking it. So <laughs> that is an excellent idea. I love that. And that's such a great way to connect back to community. That is a, a true giving feedback loop. I love that. I want to talk a little bit about surveying because it's something that both of you have mentioned. In particular, sur- particular, surveying your audience to learn more about the demographics, about who those folks are. Can you both tell me, and I'll start with you, Tom, how often are you surveying your audience? and a little bit about the process of how you're gathering that information. So, sure. I guess about three years ago, we did a really, you know, in-depth survey. We got with a, a university, a Old Dominion University here in Virginia that has a, you know, program that does this kind of work. And I think it was about a $1,000, $1,500 investment, which is not insignificant. But, you know, I knew that we would come out of that with a, with a really viable report that people would trust. You know, it wasn't just us saying, Here, who, here's who's reading us, you know, they're putting their name to it. And so, you know, I, my sense would be probably you want to do something like that every three or four years. If you can afford to do it, we're probably due for another one. Um, but it really helped us identify, you know, why do people read us? How long have they been reading us? What level of loyalty do, the loyalty do they feel to us and to our advertisers? 
And it largely confirmed what we thought our readership looked like, but it was nice to be able to say to people, you know, here's 1200 surveys respondents, this is who they are, you know, so that if you advertise with us, you know that you're going to be reaching people like this. Uh, I, I, you know, it's an investment, but I think if you're in it to, to get into the advertising game, it's probably an investment that you have to make. That's right. I really do love that. And Simon, anything you want to add there on surveying? Sure. So I have an idea that I stole from someone else and you can steal it from me. So every time someone creates, becomes a paid subscriber to my newsletter, it, I have an automated email that goes to them. And the subject line is, what do you create and how can I help? It, it goes out to every single subscriber, that a paid subscriber. And the body of it reads, first off, thanks for subscribing to my newsletter. I can't tell you how big a deal it is to me that you choose to help support my journalism. I regularly publish case study interviews with top media executives and entrepreneurs. You should take advantage of the archives for these interviews. Secondly, can you reply to this email and tell me a little bit about what you do? I like having a dialogue with my readers, and sometimes I'll email people who have specific expertise to bounce an idea off them and ask questions. I'd love for you to introduce yourself if you have a few moments. The vast majority of the people who receive that email respond to it. They they tell me what they do, what they, you know, what, you know, what company they work for, all that kind of stuff. I then take that and I plug it into a spreadsheet along with their name and email address. So then I can then, you know, when I'm like compiling my demographics of what industry my readers work in and stuff like that, I have all that information, you know, in a spreadsheet. And then for the ones who don't respond to that, I, you know, once a month, I pick, it's usually the first day of the month is I'll send a personal email to all those people just saying, hey, thanks for becoming a subscriber. Can you tell me, can you just tell me a little bit more about yourself and what you're looking for from, from me? And then the ones who, if they didn't respond to the initial email, a lot of times they do respond to that personal email and then whatever they tell me, I put into that spreadsheet. So I have kind of like a naturally organic response where my subscribers automatically reveal more information about themselves that I then was able to utilize when I was creating my advertising page. That's great. Listen, folks, always be borrowing, we won't call it stealing, but <laughs> borrowing and crediting people with good ideas. Those are both, both of those were really great items for newsrooms to take back and use. Simon, I want to talk for a bit about telling your story. And I think many newsroom folks or, or newsroom leaders are really good at telling the story of their organization. And I think all of us are struggling with explaining to our audiences and our communities about what's happening to journalism and the breakdown of the revenue of journalism. How should we be talking to our audience and our community about the struggles of revenue on the journalism side and the challenges that all of us are having and keeping the lights on? Yeah, I mean, like one thing I see a lot of publishers doing is just being completely transparent about you know, where this money is going. Like, I don't think like most readers even actually understand. So saying like, you know, we're trying to raise $50,000 because of, you know, X, Y, Z. I, I know the discourse, which is a, um, a bunch of news outlets in local news outlets in Canada, they're very kind of transparent with their members in terms of communicating exactly, you know, what their journalism is funding. And, I think people, I mean, especially if you're a member of the community, telling that first person story regularly, putting that into your messaging, you know, don't be, don't feel like, I feel like so many calls to action for memberships 
are just too short. It's just something like support our journalism and X, Y, Z. Whereas if you look at The Guardian, which is this amazing success story and getting over 1 million paying members without implementing a paywall. They do it because they're not afraid. Like you go to the end of a, a Guardian article, there's like an extra 500 words just explaining, you know, we're not owned by billionaires. We're not a corporate media company. You know, you, you know, your your funding supports this climate, you know, our reporting on climate change and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like you got to be drilling that stuff to you at home all the time. So we're going to to wrap up with one question and it's a hard one is we're going to open up. We're going to do some vulnerability here. Shout out to Brene Brown. We're going to really lean into our hearts here. What's one revenue mistake you've seen? And more importantly, forget the scene. Let's talk about what we've done or learned the hard way. And Tom, I'm going to start with you. Oh, good, good question. I've made a ton of mistakes. You know, I think probably early when I hired my first few folks on the revenue generation generation side, I didn't do the things that I said earlier in this conversation to do. I didn't really know what the goals were. I didn't know how long I could keep somebody. And I'd say, here, I'm going to pay you X amount in base salary, but I didn't know if I could afford to do that. You know, I, I was just kind of thinking, oh, he'll sell X amount and it'll be great. You know, don't do that. So I think a lot of it, again, just comes down to planning. I always plan for the worst case. I tend to be a worst case thinker anyway, as I imagine a lot of business owners are, you have to be sometimes, um, you know, don't overcommit yourself because it can, if it goes wrong, you may be done. You know, we, we, most of us in Lion don't have margin for error. Again, it's just, you know, you have to be very cautious about when, when the timing is right and, and really dot all your I's and cross all your T's in advance so that you know what to expect going into it. Sign. I think like one of the biggest mistakes I did my first like experiment with subscriptions is I tried to like, and you'll see a lot of publishers do this, try to sell access to a community. So I created like a private Facebook group and was like one of the main perks for becoming a subscriber was getting access to this Facebook group, but you, it's really hard to generate a thriving community from scratch. And it's especially hard if you're doing it through a paywall, because what happened is I got like maybe 20 or 30 like paying subscribers. And that's not enough to jumpstart a community. Like it just was like a ghost town. And so this main benefit that I supposedly was providing was this community. And yet there was no conversation that was going on in this Facebook group because I was limiting access to paying subscribers. So that's definitely, you know, a balance you got to strike if that's the way you want to go in terms of in terms of like offering a perk to subscribers is you have to have a plan in place to figure out how to jumpstart that community or else it, it's just, it's, you know, just going to become a ghost town and people are just going to abandon it. Listen, this has been an excellent conversation. When I tell you, I am going to borrow so many of the things that you all have said here. Thank you both so very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Newsguest, a production of Lion Publishers. This episode was produced by Jenna Spinelli with editorial support from Ben Desjardins. Visit lionpublishers.com for more information about Newsguest and the many other resources Lion offers for independent news publishers. Newsguest will be back next month with a conversation about how to be a better manager. Until then, I'm Candace Fortman. Thanks for listening.